And it turned out to be uh, Jonathan Cooper in Portland, Maine. And I called John Cooper. I was interested in trying a new instrument anyway. And I had tried um, a few fiddles and I wasn't loving them. And John Cooper FedExed me this violin, which I thought was crazy. I, I was like FedExing a violin, oh my goodness. But the violin arrived in a huge FedEx box and I opened it up. And I, I'm not joking, the minute I played it, I was, I don't know, I just fell in love. Like I, I couldn't believe it. And that's the fiddle I'm playing now. And it's like, I, I will not play another fiddle. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and this is part two of my interview with Winifred Horan, who I met in 2016 at the Wintergrass Music Festival, where she was performing with the traditional Irish band Solace. And to get started, let's listen to Winnie play her own composition, A Daisy in December, from her music CD, Serenade, with fellow Solace band member, McMacaulay.
I'm on the edge of my seat, quite honestly, because I want to know when this, you know, revolution occurs. Oh. Or you've got a civil war been going on. Pretty much. Inside your own musical psyche. Absolutely. And I I neglected to mention also that over all these years, I, I, I grew up in Rockaway Beach, New York. I mean, on the beach. So it was a pretty beach community, surfing. I, I was hearing like the Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner and Bruce Springsteen and beach music. And mm. um, I neglected to tell you that my father, being you know somewhat heavy-handed, kind of banned, uh, banned, not, yeah, I guess I have to be really honest, <laughs> he banned us listening to anything but the classics, the classical music. But um, obviously, I found a way around that, and I was I was a complete. I was a teenager, and I really loved rock and roll, and I really loved pop music, and so I, I was rebelling inside, but I was keeping the front of you know pursuing the whole classical thing and loving it, and loving the violin, loving the violin, and that's really the only thing that sort of kept me on track with this whole thing with that that I, I loved the instrument so much. And what did you love about it? Oh, God. Um, I mean, it's evolved over the years, what I love about it. But no, I think it's just, it feels like, well, this is going to sound cheesy, but it, it really feels like part of me or something. It feels like, it feels like an extension, like another limb, and like I remember having an argument recently with um now that I'm back in 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 the fiddling world and able to make my own choices about what sort of technique I want to use and yeah i i I still love classical music, but the freedom of 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 folk music and traditional music is the freedom of that is what brought me back to it and and the argument my argument was always that. I thought it was ridiculous that that music had to be put into compartments, genres had to be separated. Or, but as a teenager, I couldn't really verbalize it with finesse. I knew that I I, I disagreed with them, you know. I disagreed with it, and I still do. But so the interesting thing was, I went through the conservatory, and I was, uh, I didn't really have the nerves of steel that it took I realized it soon enough I didn't really have that competitive hard edge you know every man or every woman for herself or every man for himself get to the top audition nerves of steel um I have to say like in everything the 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 politics and the uh yeah the politics in 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 that world is it's it was just it was just upsetting to me and I did I did auditions when I got out when I finished and my nerves were my worst enemy and my confidence suffered because of what happens at a conservatory for 4 years like you're I feel really strongly about this you're never good enough you can never practice enough your interpretation of something is always questioned. And we're talking about like reading off a page, a manuscript or, or notation that was written down like three or 400 years ago. And then you have these experts that are telling you, no, he meant this, 
or he meant this. And, uh, you know, I was always just really frustrated with that whole thing of like, how, how can you be sure? And, you know, I know they're scholars and you have to believe some of that, but it just didn't, it just didn't make sense to me that, that there was like police involved <laughs> in, in, in interpretation, you know, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I was always at odds with it and in some ways always a bit of a rebel and it got me into a little bit of trouble at the conservatory, but um, I, you know, it didn't it didn't bother me. But your question before about having any teacher or a decent instrument, the violin, like the first time a teacher said to me that he wouldn't continue to teach me unless I got a decent violin, because whatever level he thought I was at at this particular time, whatever techniques he was trying to teach me or whatever he was trying to teach me about playing and expressing things on the violin, he was feeling that the instrument itself was holding me back. And so I was only 18 or 19 at that stage. I had no money. And I was out in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Music Festival I somehow managed to scrape enough money together to, to attend. And this teacher told me that if I didn't get a, a proper instrument that he couldn't teach me anymore. I mean, I think it was a, it, it was a threat, but I don't think he would have followed through on it. But I, I actually found a way to um, get an, a new instrument and pay it. It took me a couple of years to pay it off. But the woman that I brought it fr- bought the instrument from put me on a really polite and... Uh, very uh, lazy payment schedule. What was the instrument? It was a Tetsuo Matsuda violin that I still have. Uh, Tetsuo Matsuda is a really well-respected Japanese violin maker who works out of Chicago now. And um, at the time, I didn't know what I was getting, but uh, when did I buy that instrument? Probably like 1986. And um, what did it cost? At the time, it cost $4,000, but that was like $4 million to me at the time. I was just out of college. I didn't have two pennies to rub together. I borrowed money from my aunt in Ireland to go to this Aspen music school. Um, I got a little bit of a scholarship, but I had to come up with like $2,000 to go. And she, she gave it to me with the promise that I would pay her back. And then I had to buy this violin with the promise I would pay that back. And I mean, it's typical. I mean, loads of musicians and artists have to do that. But but it's kind of a nice idea that you have these people across the ocean who are sort of rooting for you. You've become a project for them too, right? I, I think that was my dad's baby sister. Mm. And so she realized how intense all of the years of schooling and playing and lessons and training had been up until this point. And for me to go and ask her for money to continue on with this, I think she really, you know, it wasn't like I was asking money, asking for money to like run away to, I don't know. I don't know, whatever, you know. Go play for the circus go in play Ireland. For, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I wanted to go and study at the Aspen Music School and just try to flesh this all out. So you've got this violin made by a Japanese man, yeah. and you've got this Japanese teacher, 
at the conservatory, just yep. coincidentally. Mm-hmm. And uh, did the instrument make a big yes. difference to you? Yes. So the teacher was right. The teacher was right. Mm-hmm. And that summer, when I got that instrument, ninth, summer of 1986, out in Aspen, we were there for two months, and I had this new instrument, and I... I I just wanted to play it because it was new. It felt right. Everything was even. I don't know. My double stops were more in tune. I just really wanted to play. I wanted to get better. I was surrounded by really amazing players, students from all over the country, all over the world, people from Juilliard, people from Korea, people from Russia. Like it was, I was in it and and I, and I, I just wanted to get better. And I practiced a lot that summer, and I busked a lot and sight read a lot. We played string quartets out of a really like posh restaurant in Aspen for tips, and the restaurant paid us in meal vouchers, so we got to eat at this really posh restaurant. But the the upside of it was that for three hours every Wednesday and Thursday night, we were reading sight reading like Mozart string quartets and Mendelssohn string quartets, and my sight reading got way better and. I didn't know it was happening, but it was happening, and the instrument was helping me. And I went back to this conservatory that fall, and I remember, I remember my teacher back at the conservatory being like, "Wow, what happened?" So it was like I, 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 I felt like I had gotten over a plateau. Is that how they say it? Or moved past? I, I had been stuck on this plateau for a long time, not because of the instruments I was playing, but. My whole mindset changed when I got the new violin. Really, it was it was amazing. It really can be that way. That I've experienced that. Yeah. Oh, violin, absolutely. It's, it's a quantum jump. Absolutely, and it happens again. Ten years later, that same thing happens again with the violin I'm playing now. I was living in New York at the time, and I was still playing that Japanese violin, but I had gotten into back into playing fiddle music when I when I moved back to New York after I finished the conservatory and was feeling lost and frustrated and um I don't know sort of I don't know shackled or something and 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 then my ultimate meeting with like Seamus Egan and the the start the the start of Sullis I remember Seamus saying to me why aren't you playing fiddle music anymore I know we're going to talk about this new yeah. violin, but take me to that moment. What what did was there like a moment you went out to a club and saw playing again, and or you were at a party? I or? think it was a session. It was a session in New York. And what, what no, got you there? I, I lied to you. It was a it was a gig that that Seamus was playing at, and I went to see it with friends. And how'd you meet Seamus? I, mean, I had met Seamus a couple of years before. Um, it's a weird, it's a long story, so I won't go too I won't get too detailed. I was actually hired as a dance instructor at this uh, music camp down in Elkins, West Virginia. I was hired as a dance instructor, and Seamus was on the music faculty, and I brought my fiddle with me just in case. I, I was still sort of playing classical music, but I was hired as a traditional dance instructor. This is at Augusta. Yes. Yeah, I taught storytelling. Oh, for yeah. Three years. Yeah, at Elkins in Augusta, and, and that would have been a wonderful experience. I mean, absolutely, it's a life-changing experience. Mm-hmm. It can be. It was for me. Me too. No school. Me too. That would have been the summer of 1990, and I was hired as the dance instructor, an assistant to the dance instructor. They have an Irish week. Yes, and it was Irish week, and 
people had found out that I was back in New York and they remembered that I had danced and this uh, week-long program was going on and they needed an assistant and someone just called and said, would you be willing? Actually, my old dancing teacher, Donnie Golden, asked if I would come down for the week and I said, of course I will. My God, I'd love to do it and blast from the past and I brought the fiddle with me just in case I might remember some tunes and, you know, I hadn't really played fiddle in years. And to set the stage, just from my own experience, this is the kind of thing where you have classes during the day, and then when that's over, Sessions that's when night. it starts. And it doesn't end until 3 or 4 in the morning. Exactly. I don't know how people get through it. It's a lot of vitamins. <laughs> Sessions in the ice house. Do you remember the oh, ice house? Oh, the ice house, yeah. Yeah. And the acoustics, I mean, it's almost overwhelming. It's, it's this awesome, round yeah. stone building, three stories, yeah. and sessions on each level, mm-hmm. and then that little deck out back yeah. where the trees are. God, that's a long time ago. But, yeah, so I, I, I met Seamus. Seamus was the banjo instructor that week, or maybe flute, or maybe both. And um, we had a lot of mutual friends in common through music and, and Irish dancing. And so I was introduced, and I think I may have had my fiddle at one of the sessions trying to play, and Seamus noticed it, and I think, I remember him saying to me, why aren't you playing fiddle anymore? He was like, you should be playing fiddle again. He was like, what are you doing? He was like, yeah, the classical's great, but he said, you really should be playing fiddle again. He was like, I can totally hear it. Yeah, the devil on your shoulder. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> and so we got back to New York, and we started playing together. And it worked. And he was. He said that he was kind of um, turned um, turned around or turned on by the classical side of it. And I was completely interested in the freedom of expression in his playing. And then finding out that he was completely taught by ear, completely traditional oral by ear, no music lessons. Well, traditional Irish music lessons, but no formal training, no, didn't read music. And it's a fundamentally different system of transmitting absolutely. the music and the tradition. Yes. But that was such a such a moment for me because it confirmed my whole argument for all those years that I was, you know, rebelling against this idea about formal training and you have to do this way to have this technique and you have to. And then I watched and listened to Seamus and was absolutely blown away by his, first off, his technique which is mind-blowing, and his musicality. And so it, it completely defeated that argument for me. That was, that was one of the moments. I mean, there was others, but that was really the first that I was like, this has been, this has all been, you know, I, w- I was right. It, it, it can exist together. Yeah, and so then shortly after our time in Elkins at Augusta, Together, I started playing again with intensity and like eagerness, and it just felt really freeing. And um, it wasn't too long after that that Seamus and I—it was maybe about two years 
two two years after that, but we we played together for a good bit. Um, that saw the birth of Sullis. And where did that? That this, happens in New York. Right, but where did this violin? You were going to tell me this. Oh well, that the new violin <laughs> comes in. So Sullis started in ninety six. Yes, nineteen ninety six. And I was still playing the classical, well, the, the violin, the, the Matsuda, the Japanese violin that I had gotten 10 years before in Aspen, and had done a bunch of concerts with Seamus and Sullis and recorded one album on the Matsuda, and I loved it. But s- another fiddle player had been given this violin and called me up and said, Win, I think that you should try this fiddle. I think it's right up your alley, and I think you're going to love it. And but I, I I tried it, but I've sent it back to the maker, and it's a maker in Portland, and I really Portland, Maine. I really think that you should get your hands on this instrument, and and call this this maker, and it turned out to be uh, Jonathan Cooper in Portland, Maine, and I called John Cooper. I was interested in trying a new instrument anyway, and I had tried. Um, a few fiddles and I wasn't loving them and John Cooper FedExed me this violin which I thought was crazy I, I was like FedExing a violin oh my goodness but the violin arrived in a huge FedEx box and I opened it up and I I'm not joking the minute I played it I was I, I don't know I just fell in love like I I couldn't believe it and that's the fiddle I'm playing now and it's like I, I will not play another fiddle. I, I don't think I'll ever play another violin. I love that violin so much. And I didn't know what I was getting at the time. Like, that's 1996, so that's 20 years now I've been playing that violin. And now John Cooper has made an, uh, such a name for himself, and his instruments are just so beautiful and so unique. And the you know when you... I think it's really easy to identify a Cooper when you hear one. Coincidentally, last year at Wintergrass, our first time to come to Wintergrass, I interviewed Jonathan. You did? I did. Oh. And it was a wonderful interview. Oh, he's so awesome. Yeah, we got to talk about his woodpile. And this oh is what I remember, I mean, the things that stick in your mind. But yeah. uh, he was talking about all the different you know, wood he has. And he said, you know, you really do know every piece yeah. of wood. It's like you hold it in your mind. And you're always thinking, when the right musician or something, I know the wood for that person. It's unbelievable. And he mentioned at one point he had some wood, again, from being up from New England, mm-hmm. that was maple, I guess, and it came from a four-poster bed back from almost colonial periods. Wow. At least that's what I remember. And he said, you know, and that's part of my wood pile, and I'll use that someday. And I, the poetics of that, here's a bed that people maybe had died yeah. in and made love in. Yeah. Babies had been born in. Yeah. And I was immediately, of course, that's the fiddle I want, one yeah. made from that wood. But that idea of his understanding of the wood and then matching it to a musician, I just, mm-hmm. that's beyond my ken. Yeah. That people have that knack. That's, that's the artistry of it. That's the, that's the talent. That's the connection. Like we said before, a $25 million Stradivarius in the wrong hands means nothing, says nothing. The instrument is worthless, I think. You know, its only value comes from when it's when it gets to do what it can do. And when a person that can get that out of that, 
it's worthless at at if it's not played right not right but do you know what i'm saying um it it doesn't matter how 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 who 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 has put a value on that i mean the value is on there because of obviously the artistry and the 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 craftsmanship and the volcanic ash and whatever else goes into all these old amazing instruments but it's worthless unless it's being played by another artist like so that that connection like john's talking about he knows the wood for a certain musician and that's really powerful i mean that's true well i think we're in a society and um it's interesting i was i happened to be in england on a trip we took a couple of years ago and we were down in the metro and they have all these advertisements up along the walls mm-hmm. and they were for computers and they were for shoes and they were for handbags and things like yeah. that a little later i happened to be in paris with my wife and we got in the metro and almost all the posters were advertising movies and i saw you know in the other place it was about objects in this place it's about experience go to this movie and you'll have this experience you'll feel these emotions mm-hmm. that's what they were promoting and it, it i sometimes think that uh, we you know we really are so fixated on objects in our culture now that we're almost deaf to the experience. And and not to, you know, slam the English at all, but being Irish myself, I think you always had this tension between the English coming in and then the Irish who really would almost drop everything for an experience. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a good evening, a crack, as they say. Yeah. The, the, the music and the tunes, uh, there was nothing done by it. You, you couldn't put it in the bank. You couldn't no. make anything with it. it. But it was still valuable. It had a value, intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts on that? I don't know. I guess I could I could go back to what we were... I, I always related to like modern, modern conveniences, technology, um, like my comfort zone. I, and I hate to have to defend it. And I feel like... I feel like we have to defend ourselves in this day and age. Like, give me that piece of wood, and 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 I'm happy. It's like that's my comfort zone. That's my. That's like, um, like I said, not to sound cheesy, but like an extension, like another limb. That's how I communicate. Not. It's like I short circuit if if it's if it's a, a an iPhone or or an iPad or a, you know I know an, an amazing set of headphones so you can hear music through your your iPad is really important. Like, but do you know what I'm saying? It's like the, the rawness, the the being able to feel it and touch it, and um, well. I mean, one way to view it is... Well, that, and that's experience, yeah. right? And, and, you know, we use these words, we throw them around all the time now, analog versus digital. And, of course, everything's analog. Everything's analog. Because, you know, you move it into the digital domain to store it, to manipulate it, to do whatever, but it only has use to us. Or, again, maybe like a fiddle. I don't know what metaphor I'm drawing here. But it has to be brought back to analog because we are analog. And uh, everything we're touching and seeing, a piece of wood, is really light waves. It's, it's, it's waves. 
And uh, I mean, you know, the whole world of physics fascinates me where mm-hmm. something can be a particle at one moment and then it can become a wave at the next moment and go back to being a particle. I mean, we, we see these things as solid, but they're, our science tells us it's not at all like that. And so we live in this very rich, magical, mysterious world of these things like wood and paper and yeah. pens and and ears. and uh, But we're, it seems like the digital world puts us into a dream. It's like a dream world, an, abs- an abstraction. It's a reflection of reality, but not reality. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, what, pri- what price do we pay to make these transformations? I use them in this interview. Mm-hmm. I'll take what we're doing, mm-hmm. and this is very analog, and I will then, it'll, it's already being converted into digital information, and it'll make my editing much easier, and then hopefully I'll do it with a high quality. But even think about music right now. I mean, we're being con- suddenly content with highly compressed music that's almost unpleasant to well, the yeah. ear. Yeah, I think, I think. But we can store so many more tunes. Yeah. I just think we're all, I don't know. I feel like we tend to, we tend to overanalyze everything. Everything. And I mean, if, if, if even getting back to, even just getting back to the violin, like, it, we tend to overanalyze it, okay? It's, it's, it's a piece of wood. You play it with another piece of wood with horsehair. That's it. Like, that's what you're working with. How, why do we have to overanalyze that? I mean, there's techniques that you have, that you have to know how to, how to execute that or how to make it happen. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, um, I might be a little bit of a, even, even when it comes to miking, my instrument or I've tried pickups I've tried all of them and uh, I don't I don't I don't go for it like I you know I'm, I'm old school like that uh, and I'm not I'm not a traditionalist at all like but when it comes to if we're talking about what the violin can say or what how it should sound like why would you stick anything extra onto it I I don't know. And that it's great, great. All all, all that stuff. Uh, look at if you're playing at a a festival that there's thousands of people there, and you're battling against like six other instruments on the stage, and the fiddle obviously is not going to speak. Then yeah, you have to do what you have to do. But we tend to overanalyze everything. Yeah, I know somebody who busks or just they play in in doorways in Ireland. Yeah. Because they're really convinced that only the first three or four rows of people are ever really going to hear what the fiddle is doing and the tradition of which it comes out of. Everything beyond that is is amplified, and it's mm-hmm. a it's a good experience, but it's really a different experience. Yeah. It's something all different. I mean, that's just people have these quirky ways of trying to understand it. I certainly don't have the answers. Yeah. But um, I, I guess I do feel that the world has the possibility to surprise us and again, a word that can be overused is, has a magical quality to it. And that something that grew in the, well, we, we went up to the Dolomites, my wife and I, where Stradivari mm-hmm. got his wood allegedly, or, you know, he, he didn't go there, but that's where the wood came from for his instruments in Guaneri. And uh, the night we got there, uh, they put us up in this agro-tourism place. They were really gracious to us, and they gave us this room to stay in before we were going to go into the forest to meet with the forester. And a tremendous thunderstorm came through. I mean, it was biblical. And boom, boom, and lightning and thunder. And you're way up high in the Alps. 
and you're looking down the valley. And I went out on the porch, and I even took my recorder out there and recorded it mm-hmm. because it was such a good uh, thunderstorm. And I thought, my gosh, they cut these trees at about 200 years. That's about the age that they, they've been managing this forest sustainably mm-hmm. since the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's a shining example of how we could be dealing with these things. The, uh, the wood that goes into making these instruments. And I thought, how many times have those trees vibrated to those thunders, you know, the, the, the rolling vibrations of that uh, electrical disturbance in the air and the lightning in the soil and the nitrogen that yeah. gets released and, the, and all that that goes into the wood. And then at 200 years, we cut this tree down and we take this spruce and we carve it, or somebody like Jonathan Cooper carves it, and next thing you know, it's this thing we play, and it's changed our lives, and we can't get enough of it. Yeah, I had a I had an interesting experience um, in a in a. Is it time to go? You get about one more. Okay, I think this is. It's a eight oh seven. Okay, this is a really interesting little experience that I had uh, a couple of years back at a um, an instrument. A violin shop, um, a, a pretty um, well-known violin shop on the East Coast, and I know the owner, and he knows my violin, and I take my violin in there to be repaired, and you know, get my bows rehaired in there. And I had a free hour; I was waiting for something in the shop, and he asked me if I would come upstairs and um, do him a favor and try out a few violins. And I was like, "Yeah, of course, I'd love to." And I didn't know the test he was putting before me. Um, I don't know if I appreciate it now, but here's what happened. So I got upstairs and there were ten, eight to ten violins laid out on a table. And he asked me to go, go down the line and, and try each one. And maybe not eight to ten, maybe about six. And tell him which one I like the best and why. I mean, you can't do that in an hour. You need to, I, I honestly, you really need to, a lifetime. But I, I, I played each one and did it twice and then did it three times again. And I was like, oh my goodness, I don't know. And um, I picked one. I was like, wow, I really love this one. It feels round. It feels warm. I can feel it. I can feel it in my body when I'm playing it. It's just pleasant. It's, you know, it's everything I like about the sound or the tone. It's all connecting and it's all woven and warm. And this is the one I like. And after, so what I, what I had played, he told me afterwards, was like two Stradivari, a Guarneri, a Guadagnini, and two Chinese factory violins just off the production line and I picked one of the production line Chinese violins and when he told me that I felt less than or something I felt like oh my god I failed this test how could I not how could I not have picked the Strad or how could I have not like my ears are better than that or I should know I'm a violinist or I'm a fiddle player I should know this but his he was happy he was happy about this he, his, his world is violins, like, but apparently these these particular instruments are gaining a reputation of being right up there for sound, projection, 
tonal quality, all of that. And, um, but I remember going home and thinking, wow, I failed that test miserably. And then, um, a friend of mine who's like a really great chef and a wine connoisseur said to me that night when we were at dinner and I was feeling really upset about it. I was like, oh God, he probably thinks I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to producing a sound out of a violin. Like, and, and, and my friend said to me, he was like, when, you know, he was like, that happened to me um, in a really fine restaurant over in France. And I was put on the spot, you know, Somalia tried to get me to pick a really posh bottle of wine. And I ended up picking like a, you know, $8 Chianti um, as my favorite. And he was like, there's the lesson in that. He said, it's what you love. It's what makes you feel right. It's all subjective. And it has to be indiv- it has to be for the individual. It has to be. Um, I still felt like I failed the test and, and, and let down, let myself down, but it stuck with me. It's like a gorgeous bottle of Italian Chianti made in someone's, you know, kitchen, um, as opposed to like the best French vineyard that has, that gets all the accolades and has all the great press. I don't know. Makes you think who the Chinese maker was. Yeah. And what his story. And what his story is. Or her story might have been. Yeah. And what sort of, what are they bringing to the equation? What did they figure out about mm, measurements or, you know, micromillimeters or the scroll should be a bit fatter or the, the length of the fingerboard should be this? I don't know. What did they bring to the table now? What kind of wood are they using? <laughs> um, but anyway, Good I'm happy with my Jonathan Cooper <laughs> to, to, to round it all off. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I hope it was okay. You you passed the test. And now to end part two of our podcast, let's listen to Winifred Horn play a tune called Crested Hens with the band Solace.
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, to hear additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And we would especially like to thank the staff of the Wintergrass Music Festival in Bellevue, Washington. They're great people, and they made it very easy to set up this interview with Winifred. Thank you.